This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from AllComic.com, episode 144. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lam Ramayasha, and we've got more manga for you because we are talking about manga, no manga. That's right, this is a Manga Mo Spotlight podcast. We're reviewing some series available on the Manga Mo app that we've been interested in. Namely, those series are Loving Yamada at level 999, and I Want to Be Your Girl, and Dropkick on My Devil. So we're reviewing all three of those series on this episode. In addition to that, we're also going to touch upon two other recent new additions to the Mangamo app, namely uh, Warrior Demigods Champions of Sparta and the most tsundere boss in history. We're only going to briefly mention those because they're pretty brief manga to begin with. But we're also going to talk about the other New Promised Neverland one-shot, the Isabella-focused one. And in addition to all that, we've got news for you, too. A couple pieces of news. So, another pretty good manga discussion. More manga to talk about? More manga podcasts to listen to? There is always Mo Manga to talk about. It never ends. Mo Manga, Mo Problems. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I don't think we have anything else at the top of the show besides news to talk about. So I think we should just get right into it. And uh, we can get right into serialization news. And I guess in terms of serialization news, um, do we just want to talk about that new Promised Neverland one-shot that came out? Yes, let's talk about the New Promised Neverland one-shot side story of Mother's Determination. The premise of this is that it's set a month after Isabella has taken over as grandma for the entire farm system. Oh, actually, here, real quick. Um, huge, huge spoilers if you have not read the end of the Promised Neverland. Like Colton. <laughs> Just gotta throw me under the bus. Okay, probably should put that warning out there. I'm sorry, please continue. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's been a couple of months since Problem Level ended, but yeah, I mean, so this takes place a month after uh, Isabella took over as the grandma of all the farms, which happened after everyone escaped from Gracefield way back when. And so a bunch of the sisters who worked for the previous grandma, who I think finally, or maybe it was revealed in the series, I missed it. But pre- the previous grandma was Sarah. And so the other sisters who used to work under Sarah are like suspicious of Isabella because she always used to be so prodigious, a top student. And she rose through the ranks really fast. So they want to drag her down. They want to oust her because Isabella is doing really, really well. So they're going to like create like suspicious activities. Like they're going to force something suspicious to create an opportunity to get her out. But Isabella, of course, finds them out. She entraps them all in a room, serves them all tea. And she basically asks them all, hey, you know, instead of exposing me or instead of like trying to bring me down, why don't you all join me in my plan to take down the farm system? She tries to recruit them. She appeals to their sense of compassion and says, you know, have you ever wondered what happened to all the children that you gave birth to? Well, it turns out that I was raising them at Gracefield. They're all fine. They escaped. So you should help me and should help them survive, escape, and live a happy life outside. 
And so she appeals to their, you know, sense of, hey, under this system, we all are like being turned against each other. We're all trying to bring each other down. We should all work together to escape this place, create a happy life for ourselves and the children. And so she does that. The first one to do that has been the perspective character of this one shot, Matilda. And that's basically what happens. And basically it's to explain how mom recruited the other sisters to help her stage a revolution long term in this plan to take down the farm system and help the kids. Another big reveal in all this is that, of course, the sisters, they're, they're all the mothers of kids from Gracefield. I think it's heavily implied who they are the mothers of. I feel like Matilda, based on hairstyle, may have been the mother of Norman. I feel like one of the mothers is the mother of Phil. One is the mother of Emma. That's just a hunch on my part based on the hairstyles. Nothing concrete, nothing ever confirmed. But I think it makes sense thematically to have like the mothers of all the core characters from Gracefield kind of all be in on this plan together. Yeah, yeah. Considering Isabella is the mother of Ray. And that's kind of how she's able to to convince them to come on the plan because she shows them uh, the letter that Ray wrote to her that basically revealed that Ray knew that he was Isabella's son. And the fact that she kept on to it reveals that she had like a soft spot for him. And if they had turned that over to the demons, that would have put a dent in her credibility and put some suspicion on her. But by keeping it on to it, that's how the sisters are convinced that they can trust her. Because she wouldn't hold on to something like that if she didn't have, like, a heart, basically. But yeah, this basically all goes to show how Isabella recruited the other sisters to help her. And then it ends with them all, like, standing in front of Isabella's grave and saying, Hey, we're all living well, we're happy, Isabella. So, it's a nice one-shot. I think it's a little more substantial, I guess, than the crone one-shot. In terms of revealing information, that's kind of nice to know. Give some context and background for things that were a little glossed over in the actual manga. And it's a good showcase for Isabella as a character, too. So, yes, I did enjoy this. Okay, that's that's good. Um, Yeah, as, as someone who, I have to be honest, like, you know, th- there was a point this year where I, I just never really got back to a lot of my Shonen Jump manga, unfortunately, because... Look, this this whole year's been hard on everybody, so I hope everybody understands. Um, but in Pro- Promise Neverland in particular, I also didn't get back to just because, like, I was already feeling a little fatigued on it, quite honestly. So I that's kind of part of the reason I haven't really gotten back to it yet, and I'm not really sure when I'll get back to it uh, just yet, honestly. But um, that being said, I, I thought this one shot was pretty interesting. I, I liked seeing Isabella again. I uh, there, there was one point where I wasn't entirely sure if we were gonna like see much of her again, and so I'm, I'm, I'm glad that like, especially with like, like the actual manga that like they eventually go back to Gracefield House. So, you know, there's that. But uh, yeah, I don't know. As as someone who didn't like read the ending of the Promised Neverland, this was also a huge surprise that I didn't see coming. And I was telling Lum off mic now. Now that I know what's coming, I'll just I'll just cry less. Basically, like it, it won't it won't hurt as much when I when I get to the ending of Isabella. But um, I thought it was interesting. I think um, I think in terms of being like a like a complete uh, like a complete story, 
I, I kind of enjoyed Crone's story. I'm not sure if I enjoyed it more, but I enjoyed Crone's story as like a, as like kind of a one-off. Like it's con- it's connected, the, it's connected to the Promised Neverland, but like it you could you could kind of read it on its own and be like, okay, this was this was interesting. I don't know. I don't know if what I'm saying makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a better self-contained story. Yeah, yeah, but exactly. For the reasons that we discussed last time i didn't feel it was like the most satisfying just because of the destination of the character in the actual story here it is a little sass more satisfying because it has a happy ending you know it, i can and also it gives context for these other characters who like in the series was like okay i guess they're all on mom's side now but like this this again goes to humanize a lot of the sisters working in the farm system and it is nice to see them also escape from it mm-hmm. and also again it's just nice to see an expansion on isabella becoming committed to helping the kids and coming up with this long-term plan and getting others to join her mm-hmm. yeah i mean i i definitely didn't see that coming but yeah no i don't really have much else to say on it other than i just i i enjoyed it mm-hmm. i agree and uh again for those who haven't read it yet you know it's it's on the show to jump app for anyone who wants to read it and i i believe this is probably going to be the last one shot that we see for a bit i don't know they could come out with more i don't know well they announced that there's a oyakazu no neverland or the the promise of like gag manga that's getting like a special chapter next week i don't know if we'll get that Probably not, but uh, probably not. they're doing more Promise Neverland promotional manga things to lead up to that new season and the movie. So, you know, we may see more things in the future. I guess never say never, but I guess we can move on to the rest of our serialization news. Yeah, we have some interesting and fun pieces of serialization news, including we're getting two new Tsukima and Deka manga. That's right. Everyone's favorite yo-yo slinging gangsta girls are returning in two new manga in Akita Shoten's monthly print this magazine. Starting with a series from Saori Moronaga called the Sukaban Deku who left through time. That's going to begin in the next issue of the magazine on January 6th. And that issue is also going to feature a pre-serialization preview of another new manga called Re-Sukaban Deku by Ashibi Fukui. And that's going to launch in the March 2021 issue. That's going to come out in February. So we only really know stuff based on the title so far, but I think like Isukiban Deka manga that is also kind of like a parody of Girl Who Lets Your Time or there's some sort of time travel gimmick in it could be a lot of fun. And Week Sukiban Deka is probably going to be a reimagining of Sukiban Deka, so that also seems really fun. And in general, this is a franchise that I enjoy quite a bit. I like the movies a whole lot. And I hope to see these if they prove to be, you know, successful. Hopefully they will get published. Because I would like to see some of the Sukiban Deka manga get published in English. But moving on to some Jump-related stuff. Shiro Sasaki is finally making her return to the pages of Weekly Shonen Jump. Because she will be drawing a new one-shot partnered with Osamu Ishikawa for the story... That's going to come out in the next issue of Jump called A Fire-Eyed Cyclops, which is being billed as a heresy lawyer suspense story, basically about a lawyer who 
challenge exorbitant prices uh, for services and has some special powers. So it's just nice to see Uzazaki return so quickly after the unceremonious cancellation of Actage and that whole unfortunate situation. And I'm glad that she's gotten work in manga again quickly. I hope for the best for this one shot and perhaps it has the potential to be workshopped into becoming a series and maybe uh, so, you know, hopefully this is a partnership and a premise for a story that works out. And I would like to see Viz take a chance and translate it. I don't know how likely that is, but I think that fans of Uzazaki's work would really appreciate the chance to read it. I, officially in English. Um, but yeah, that's really about it for uh, for serialization news. And we we do have some small bits of licensing news to talk about. A few small things, mainly uh, one of them being, and uh, I'm kind of shocked we forgot to mention this last time. Well, it hadn't we really been it. announced last time. Had it? I thought it was. No, anyway. it hadn't. It did, was not announced to have been added as a single public country role when we reported last time. But yes, Shangri-La Frontier, which we did announce, had been picked up by Kananja Comics on our last episode, has also been announced to be simul-published on Crunchyroll. You can uh, read the first chapter and then chapters past the first volume, 6 through 21, and future chapters on there now. And it's also being simul-published on other platforms, of course, like Comixology, wherever Kodansha publishes their simul-pubs and stuff. So, yeah, this is a new uh, title to be simul-published, and... It's a new addition to the Crunchyroll manga roster, which is always nice to see them finally pick up some new things every now and again. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of surprised they're still adding anything to Crunchyroll manga at this point. Well, at least they finally updated their player from the previous Flash player. I mean, it's currently just in beta right now, this new manga reader that they're doing. But, you know, it works pretty nice. So I'm glad they did it just in time before Flash became obsolete. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Maybe I can finally catch up with Ajin and not have the app crash on me. I really hate it when that happens. Well, I'm talking about the browser right now specifically, so who knows if the app is going to improve. Like, the app interface is pretty much the same last time I checked, but hopefully that also, the infrastructure of that improves. I hope so, too. Uh, next thing we have to talk about is that uh, Viz will be releasing the first volume of Mission Yozakura Family digitally on December 22nd, which is cool. I I didn't think they were going to pick this one up, honestly. I It's really hard for me to gauge, like, I guess how well-received Yozakura Family has been, in, like, in particular, because, like, I don't see a lot of people talking about it on my end, so... Really? Well, I think it's been a successful series in Japan. It's definitely... One of the recent jump series that has definitely made enough of a fan base to stick around. It does decently in sales. I think the fact that Wiz has only licensed this for digital volume releases is kind of an indication that they aren't like fully confident in it just yet. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping to see if 
Yuzukura family continues, and eventually, if it does one day get an anime adaptation, they do finally commit to print. But this seems like an early, well, this series is doing well enough, but we don't know if it's going to do well enough to sell in print. So let's take a dance on doing digital, see how that does, and then we'll make a commitment for print later. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the the series is over a year old at this point, and I think that's, you know, like you were saying, that's indication enough that I think it's it's probably not going to be, like, canceled anytime soon, probably. No, I, I don't think so. I think, it, again, it's doing pretty well right now. It's not really in danger, I would say. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, that, that's cool to see. I'm I'm glad that Viz is doing more, like, digital volumes of stuff and, and not, not just for, like... There are other canceled stuff, though that that's good too. I'm I'm glad to see that as well. Uh, they're taking a chance on more things, uh, which is which is good. Yeah, and next we've got some new licenses from a relatively new publisher, Kaiten Books. They announced three new titles recently. The first being Gotcha Girl Corps by Chin Kururi for the original story, and Siu Haruno for the art and character designs by Isagawa Yasutaka. And this is just about a guy who's pulled into another world on a smart form, and he has to do his best to survive, roll gotcha, so this may be a manga Jeff Ruberg would like, since he likes gotcha games. I don't know, <laughs> it just depends on how interesting the gotcha mechanics in the series are, and whether the characters have, like, interesting personalities, but, you know, cute cover arc. It's kind of another isekai thing, but an isekai gotcha story, you know? No, I haven't seen too much of those. But the next title is Yakuza's Guide to Babysitting by Sukiya. That's coming out February 12th. It's about a Yakuza who has to babysit his boss's daughter. So this is another one of those dude has to take care of a young kid kind of stories. But, you know, having the dude be a Yakuza guy adds a little flavor to it. It adds a little, oh, well, now there's some more interesting hijinks scenarios you can imagine. So I think this could end up being like a cute spin on that premise. And uh, it's being translated by friend of the show and guest on the show, Jenny McKeon. So I always enjoy Jenny's translation work, so I'm looking forward to this as well. And that's one thing I really appreciate about Kaiten Book is that they credit their translators right on the cover, which is really cool. And I think something more publishers should do. But next we've got Welcome to the Outcast Restaurant. With the original story credited to Yuki Kimikawa, art by Sumumi, and original character designs by Gao. This comes out on March 12th, and it's about a guy who's one of the most popular members of his party. The strongest party in the world of this series. But his leader exiles him from the group out of spite, and so stripped of his home. He starts a new life with a young girl named Atelier and opens up a restaurant. So this is another installment of these type of restaurant in another world genres. Cooking manga in other world genres. So again, this also, I don't know if it's like the most unique take on it. But, you know, if you like these kind of isekai cooking slash restaurant type stories, this is another one to look forward to. Mm -hmm. I think definitely out of all these uh, new licenses by Kaiten Books, I'm definitely looking forward to the Yakuza's Guide to Babysitting the most because that is definitely a series that looks right up my alley and I I can't wait to read it. I think it has the most interesting premise for sure. 
it, it's it's like I've said before. I I am a sucker for stuff like um uh stuff along the same lines as like you know sweetness and lightning and pre creepy bunny drop. I should be specific there. Um, you know, series about a guy having to take care of a kid and. You know, I'm, I'm just I'm a sucker for really sweet things like that, and, and and you know the Yakuza twist to that I think just makes it even funnier, honestly. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean that about does it for our licensing news. And now we're gonna head into industry stuff, and we're gonna just touch upon what we discussed last time: Sony's purchase of Crunchyroll. We've got a few new details about this. First of all, they are purchasing Crunchyroll under the Funimation brand. The Funimation Global Group has acquired Crunchyroll, and that has some interesting ramifications of whether Crunchyroll will be independent under Funimation or whether these brands, these companies are going to merge, but it seems like Crunchyroll is going to be under Funimation in terms of the hierarchy of these companies here. But also we know now the final purchasing price is $1.175 billion, which is still less than what AT&T wanted, $1.5 billion, but it's more than what Sony tried to bring the price down to, which was less than $1 billion at $957 million. So Warner got at least $200 million more than Sony wanted to pay for Crunchyroll. But this is like a pretty big acquisition then, if you think like Crunchyroll is like an a billion dollar worth company. It goes to show that Wow, at e was very desperate to sell something off to reduce its debt. If they're going to sell a very valuable and growing part of its op- of its company, of its portfolio, to another rival conglomerate just to reduce its debt just a little bit. But yes, it has been often talked about, often remarked that this is a very bad thing for the industry in terms of this is a real anime monopoly that Sony has because they own like the biggest distribution studios in North America in addition to producing anime themselves. So Sony has the anime industry on kind of a stranglehold here in terms of like how much market share it has. So it remains to be seen, like, the full ramifications of this down the line. But not great. Not great to be in a state where we have, like, this huge monopoly in the anime industry. And this is really feeling like that Disney-Fox merger all over again in terms of the consolidation of all these brands, all this entertainment under one studio umbrella that is probably going to lead to a lot of job losses, a lot of layoffs, uh, potentially less new original projects, uh, less resources going around. So, I mean, again, we have to see what happens from here. But, yeah, this uh, role ain't crunchy, in my opinion. But that about does it for that for now. We have to wait and see the full ramifications. We have to move on to more sad news. And unfortunately, this is a really heartbreaking one because Kirby Mora has passed away unexpectedly and very suddenly at the age of 47, very young. He was, of course, the voice of Moroku and Inyasha, but also played several very iconic roles as part of the Ocean Group, including Troll Barton and Gundam. He was like the third Goku in the Ocean dub of DBZ from like the Cell Saga to the Boo Saga. 
He was a lot of really great roles, and it's really sad to see him pass away just because of health complications, and especially really disheartening because he had just returned for the first episode of the Yashihime dub, and I had wondered, you know, he had sounded a little gruff there, and I thought it was just like he was out of practice, but... Now, to have this context of his, he was in bad health, and to have this happen just so shortly after that came out was, was really saddening. So, rest in peace, Kerry Morrow. Our hearts go out to his family, his friends, and loved ones, and the entire community of fans of his that really appreciate and enjoyed his work, and the memorable and iconic characters he helped bring to life. And it's always hard to transition from very somber news like that to the rest of our news, but we will have to move on to some more lighthearted stuff. And the first thing we'll mention is something that I think is really neat, is that Yoko Kamiyo, the author of Boys Over Flowers, has set up her own English language website. It is a website like completely in English where you can get information on her works and read some short manga of hers that are based on Boys or Flowers and some of her other series like completely for free that are just available on this website and that she seems to be updating semi-regularly. So if you want to see more adventures of Tsukishi and Domyoji and the gang, you can check those short manga out. And there's a video for some of her new works. It links to her new YouTube channel and her Instagram and Twitter. It's just a cool website. I just love the interface of it. I like the loading screen. It's very, very cute. So yeah, if you're a fan of Yoko Kamiyo's works and you want to read some new short manga of her and just a centralized place for information about her stuff, definitely give this website a look and check it out. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll leave a link in the show notes for anyone who wants to check it out. But uh, now I think we should get into some anime news. And the first thing that I really want to talk about is, uh, I mean, in general, Netflix announced a lot of anime that they're going to be premiering next year in 2021. But the, the, the one that I think we're probably both the most excited about is that uh, Netflix is going to be premiering the anime premiere of Way of the House Husband. Yes, Way of the House Husband has now finally gotten an anime. And um, m- most importantly, the main character of Way of the House Husband, Tatsu, is going to be voiced by Kenjiro Suda. And I cannot wait because I love Kenjiro Suda. Um, he probably has the hottest voice in the world. Uh, next to Tomokazu Sukita, um, the anime uh, is going to be produced by jc staff and uh yeah it's coming out next year and uh i cannot wait to watch this and uh i can't wait to possibly talk about way of the house husband on the podcast maybe possibly we'll see um but yeah i'm pretty i'm I'm just excited about this yeah i think i'm excited for chiaki Kone being attached to direct she's known for some hyper dramatic uh, directorial choices and her signature crazy faces and i think that's going to translate way of the house husband's uh, dramatic comic moments and expressions very beautifully in animation so i'm i'm very excited to see her take on the series 
I'm very interested in how this will probably affect manga sales as well. Because I know Way, Way of the House Husband's interesting because, like, I want to say it got picked up because I know it uh, it went pretty viral, like, before it got picked up and, like, when it was, like, scanlated back in the day and whatnot. And a lot of people were, like, tweeting about it and everything. Um, I'm kind of wondering how the popularity of the series will just further evolve, honestly. But, yeah, uh, we, have, we, we still have some more anime news to talk about, Lum, if you want to take it away. Indeed. We also have an anime fusion, another series that uh, I enjoyed and I'm excited for. And that is Hiroyuki's Kanojo Mo Kanojo, or Who's a Girlfriend 2, or previously it had been uh, licensed the original one shot by Yoridori, Eskidori Fair and Square. And I really enjoyed that one shot. I thought it was a great premise about a really fun polyamorous relationship and i'm excited that and surprised that it's getting an anime adaptation so quickly because the manga serialization weekly shonen magazine only started in march but you know i think it'll be a good short form type series and yeah i really like the premise and characters of this and i'm looking forward to seeing how the anime turns out and hopefully coinciding with the anime coming will be the manga getting licensed by cadatros you know because i would like to read that as well and we also got some cool exciting announcements of some new projects coming from yoshiyuki tomino three new projects he's working on and we don't know like the full details of what these are gonna be but uh, we know that he's going to work on them after he finishes reconquista in g so, cool to see Tomo continuing to work on new projects, presumably in the Gundam franchise. But, yeah, uh, more stuff from Tomino is always very, very interesting. Next, we're going to celebrate a few mangaka receiving some really great and well-deserved awards, starting with Rumiko Takahashi, who has been awarded the Fall 2020 Medal with Purple Ribbon by the government of Japan. This medal is awarded for individuals who have contributed to academic and artistic developments and movement's accomplishments, so Takahashi has definitely done that over the course of her 40-plus-year-long career. So she's joined quite a number of other esteemed manga artists who have received this award for really contributing to the culture of Japan, alongside the likes of Shigeru Mizuki, Isao Takahata, Leiji Matsumoto, and Motohage, and so many other incredible and important talents. But a veteran has been awarded a accolade and a newcomer artist has been awarded an accolade too. Because Goyo Harud Gotoge has won the Noma Publishing Culture Award. The award honors those who have made excellent contributions to publishing, particularly to reinventing publishing. And while Demon Slayer is selling uh, over 100 million copies in like a single year and all these records it's breaking in terms of sales certainly uh, qualifies it for, you know, this achievement and Kotelke for this achievement. So they have been honored with this award as well. And I think it is well-deserved. I mean, I think we're going to see a lot of accolades awards go Kotoke's way for Demon Slayer and potentially her works in the future. And this is the only award going their way because Demon Slayer has also won the Hochi Film Award for animation. Specifically, the Move and Train film has won the animation category in said newspaper's 45th Hochi Film Awards. 
And it beat out quite an esteemed competition in the forms of On Gaku and Stand By Me Doraemon 2. So it really uh, proved its mettle there. And the Demon Slayer hype train really just keeps on going. I mean, that has to be quite clear considering just the volume of sales it continues to pull. Considering the final volume, which has recently been released in Japan, has sold a record-breaking 2.855 million copies in its first week. That is the most copies of any single manga volume that has ever been sold in a single week since Oricon began charting these things since April 2008. So, again, Demon Slayer continuing to break records and achieve milestones and amazing achievements. And we were talking about, will Demon Slayer rank as one of the highest selling manga next year? Well, with just the sales of this first, this last volume and this first week of its release alone, I think it's going to guarantee a spot in that top 10 by the time next year rolls around and we're looking at the highest selling manga of 2021. But that is a lot of big updates on Demon Slayer and awards and stuff. And now we're going to talk about a little fun poll. We like to talk about these NHK big mega polls every now and again. And they did a mega poll on Sailor Moon recently. They polled everyone's favorite characters and songs and episodes. And the winner, the queen of Sailor Moon characters, is none other than Sailor Uranus. Now, it's interesting that in this poll, they separate the Sailor Sentia identities of these characters from their civilian identities. So Uranus, number one, but Haruka herself is number three. It's just very interesting that they decided to do it that way because they're the same character, but I don't know. Regardless, <laughs> Haruka Sailor Moon, she is two spots in this top three, sandwiching Sailor Moon in between. <laughs> but the rest of the top ten is Minako, I know, otherwise known as Sailor Venus, in her civilian form, she's number four. In Sailor Venus form, she's number 12. Then we have Koseya, who is one of the starlights. I forget which starlight he is exactly, but he's number 5. I'm actually surprised that he's that popular, or they're that popular. Uh, Michirug comes in at number 6. Sailor Neptune, of course. Neptune herself in the Sailor Century identity is number 14. Saturn is number 7, with Hotaru civilian identity being number 17. Makoto is number 8, with Jupiter being number 20. Ami is number 9. It's interesting Ami ranks this low in the top 10, because she, I recall in anime polls back when Saturn was running in the 90s, she was considerably the most popular character. But regardless, Ami is number 9, with Mercury being number 10. So yeah, and the highest ranked villain in this poll was Fisheye at number 11, which is also interesting that Fisheye is the most popular villain. I mean, they, they are a great character. They are a fun character. But I'm mostly surprised and disappointed that Galaxia is so low at number 50. In my opinion, Galaxia is the best. But regardless, it's an interesting poll. And in terms of songs, uh, Moonlight and Setsu, of course, was number one. 
And I don't really recognize all the songs off my head, admittedly, but Moon Revenge, which is the finale song from Sailor Moon R, the movie, comes in at number three. And Moon Pride, the opening of Crystal, is number nine. And then in terms of favorite episodes, uh, it's interesting that movies and episodes are like at the same poll. But yeah, the most favorite, the everyone's favorite episode is Sailor Moon R, the movie, which I can definitely agree with. And then in terms of representation, a lot of episodes from the first season and from Super. Sailor Moon S, rather. Yeah. So, yeah. Though there are a couple episodes from Stars, namely the finale and uh, Uranus and Neptune's last stand, which makes sense. Uranus and Neptune, I think, are clearly the runaway favorites in this poll. But, yeah. A pretty fun NHK make a poll for Sailor Moon there. But now we're going to head into some Magamo news to wrap up our news segment up. Namely, what a big announcement for Magamo, being that it has finally launched on Android. Not only that, but Sony is investing in Magamo through their Sony Innovation Fund. And they aren't the only investors, because the Septeni Group which is a Japanese digital marketing and media company, has also invested in the app. So very interestingly, they have gotten some more investors, some more funding, and now they're on Android devices finally. So a whole nother reach in terms of accessibility, which is very nice to see. In addition to that, they have announced two new additions to their roster from Sozo Comics. The most Sundere boss in history and the Warrior Devil Gods champions of, of Sparta. Both of these are written by Sohoko Yamazaki and they have different artists. Tomokichi does most Sundere boss in history and Potaito Rus does Warrior Devil Gods. And these are also both made under DLE. And DLE is basically like a Japanese media company that does a lot of different types of uh, anime, manga type of projects. They're most known for the Eagle Talon uh, series, which is like a Flash animated cartoon that actually had like a crossover film with DC characters, which was like the Eagle Talon franchise has always been very interesting to me. They also have made some anime you ha- might have heard of. Like they were, uh, co- they co-produced Oko's Inn, which was a really good film that uh, you should definitely check out. It's on Netflix now. And they also made the Skull Facebook star Honda Son anime and the Terme Rome anime. So they've based a lot of uh, cool projects. Uh, but yeah, they, they do both manga and anime and even live action stuff. So they're just like a broad entertainment company. But uh, yeah, so we did read these, but they're very short form series. So... These seem to be dropping in batches or of, of certain chapters, it looks like. Uh, they've Basically, Manga was got them from Sozo Comics, who was doing the translation and all that stuff. And, uh, yeah, I mean, when I say they're short form, I mean, like, every chapter is, like, less than 10 pages, uh, if that. Oftentimes, even shorter. And I think they have pretty fairly straightforward premises. So, most Andre Boss in history is... Re- a reimagining of various historical female care female you know figures in history than saying hey what if these like strong very famous women were your boss in like an office company setting and they were sundares 
And that's kind of basically the gist of it. And then the variation is just like, what is this person known for? Oh, they'll be sundry the way geared to that. So like John Ark, obviously known for her military prowess. She's like instructs her employee to do like some rigorous physical training. Florence Nightingale revolutionized nursing. Obviously she has an entire nursing gimmick to her costuming and the punishment she doles out in terms of like using these giant syringes. Uh, stuff like that. And uh, the kind of the starring, the one that is featured in the most chapters is Murasaki Shikibu, who wrote the tale of Genji. And I personally don't really see much of a relevance to like the character as written to the historical Murasaki Shikibu. So it's like you could substitute her for another historical character or just like an original character. I don't really. I don't really see what she has to do with Murasaki Shikibu because she's not like a author and she there's no reference to anything from Tale of Genji as far as I can tell. So it's kind of like, why would you make her like this office uh, boss type rather than, I don't know, maybe you'd rather make her a librarian or just an author and she, she could be the boss her assist she could just have an assistant and that's how she's a boss or whatever and Florence Nightingale you know she should work at a hospital why is she also doing an office job why isn't John the Ark just a mil in the military why is she also doing an office job so it's I get it it's like what it's reimagining them all as like oh office ladies you know and, and that's just one setting. It's just, though, you feel like you should just tailor them to, you know, what they're known for and have professions that are unique and uh, specific to them. I think there are some decent uh, jokes in this, you know, so far. Like, there, are, like I did think that John Dark one was uh, funny. I think that the one in the elevator was really good with... Elizabeth Bathory, yeah, that was good. That was enjoyable, like just a quick thing. But yeah, I mean, there's actually there's potential. There would have been potential of this premise. I just feel like I don't know. It's just playing it a little safe, and obviously with this short length of the chapters, there's not a whole lot to develop. And Murasaki Shikibu is the character they're returning to the most, but that's also the character I least understand the connection to the real life historical figure. It might as well be an original character. This this whole series so far feels like a weird, like, mad TV sketch or, like, just something out of a sketch show in general. Like, I, I don't know. It just it, It's just kind of weird. And that's fine. It's fine to have, like, them written as, like, sketches or anything. But, you know, I just... I think we had a little more variety in terms of setting and profession. And then, you know, again, just defining, like, the characters more based on what they are known for instead of, like, this very broad kind of superficial understanding of them. It could have been, like, more interesting in terms of mining it for comedy, this premise. It certainly doesn't help that this and Warrior Demigods, there are several chapters where pages are out of order. And then I don't understand how this hasn't been fixed because we're we're reporting on this, you know, after these have already been on the surface for at least a week or two. So I don't know how this hasn't been fixed yet, but like there are ch several chapters in both of these series that are just out of order and it's, it makes it very confusing to read. So hopefully they fix that, uh, especially with 
warrior demigods like that's more of a traditional serialized story chapter to chapter so sometimes i was like whoa this is jumping to something i don't understand what's happening but then i get to the end i'm like oh these are where the first pages were i don't know why they're out of order like this uh and i guess we can jump to warrior demigods which is you know set in ancient greece spartan times and the main character is Pausanias, and he, at birth as a baby, is designated kind of as lowborn, not fit to grow up to become a warrior. So he's marked, and those cast aside by society and marked as, you know, lowborn are just called markers. So he's cast off and abandoned in the woods, and he's encountered by his foster fodder figure who raises him. But then one day they are discovered. And so Pausanias is basically kidnapped and thrown into a place called the Pillar. He's taken to the Pillar, which is basically a training ground for future Spartans. So right there I was confused because, wait, you cast this guy off because he was not fit to become a warrior. But then you're saying all markers have to be gathered up and trained at the pillar to become warriors and spartans it's just the there was a weird contradiction in the setup there but from then on in the remaining chapters the idea is basically oh they're doing spartan training like they have to climb this giant wall and they get shit thrown at them while they're trying to climb the wall and eventually the instructor like rides a giant crow bird and tries to attack them using that and they have to just knock him off so they can finish climbing the wall and so there's some interesting like shonen dramatic stakes uh training and then you know tournament battle things which is you know fairly decent nothing groundbreaking there and not too much in terms of like teams or like character relationships to truly gigging to but they're clearly establishing you know some notable major characters like Dilos is like a noble born character who has a sense of honor he fights Pausanias and eventually they come to a mutual respect in their battle after Pausanias is after Dilos rather is also thrown under the bus by Eurotas who like flicked the floor of the tournament arena with oil. And then when f- flaming arrows are fired at them, you know, he doesn't care at all that, that Delos is also at risk there. And then he, there are also like Sin Iska, who is another marker who's like really proficient with a bow and arrow. And uh, there's like some bonding stuff with him and Pausanias that they're like climbing the wall and Pausanias encouraging him to like no don't give up we are gonna make it to top of us markers will so yeah and that encourages him to like fire the arrow to knock off the instructor guy so they can finish climbing uh so you know there's some decent stories there's some decent shonen each again training and uh fight stuff there but uh yeah the premise is kind of flimsy and uh a little confusing and then it's also just not remarkable in terms of you know having like a really big dramatic hook or emotional hook to it right now like I, the main point of intrigue is just this idea that Pausanias is either a reincarnation or blessed by the of course the strongest hero in the greek mythology heracles so you know that could be an element that a lot of these markers, these characters who were considered low-born and cast aside by 
Spartan society actually have the blessings of the gods and could grow up to be like some of the greatest warriors in the country. But I don't know if it's like fully formed, like a strong thematic uh, foundation for that just yet. I think the most memorable moment of this series so far is just that Annius as a baby, like crushed a state's neck with his bare hands, which is pretty amusing. Yeah, that that was that was pretty good. It it really felt like something out of uh, Disney's Hercules, almost. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I I, I guess um, before anything, uh, the one thing I really wasn't expecting with either of these series was uh, where, where the page counts for both of these, because for full disclosure, I've been kind of busy, you know, trying to read other stuff for other podcasts. So like. Originally, I was only going to read, like, the first chapter or two of the both of these, and then when I saw that, uh, when, when I saw that the page count for both of these series didn't exceed more than 10 pages, I was just kind of like, oh, okay, I, I might as well just read, I might as well just read everything that's out, which I don't usually do because, you know, my reading speed is so, my reading speed isn't super great, uh, especially because I like to take the time to, like, kind of take in the art, but, like, I think I read the entirety of Demigod in like like 10 15 minutes or something. It it really didn't take me that long. I feel like I read both of these in maybe 2 minutes. But uh yeah, I mean uh I, I don't really have I don't really have much to say on this series in particular. I mean, it was it was fine. Like it wasn't anything groundbreaking. Like if you like th- th- this is the kind of thing that like I, I don't know, for for instance, maybe you're at like I don't know. Maybe you're maybe you're like at the dentist's office or something. And you're waiting for your appointment to start. Like, like th- this is the kind of thing that, like, if you were just kind of on the Mangamo app and you were kind of looking for something to like pass the time. Like, this is this is a good like time waster. You know, sp- spend a spend a few minutes kind of reading a few chapters of this and catching up and and yeah. I don't know. Um, I didn't think it was bad. It was again. It was just fine. And that's all I really have to say about it. Yeah, I mean, as we're going to talk about, there are some really interesting and entertaining series on manga that I think you really should check out. And I think you should check those out first before getting around to stuff like this that are, you know, they're quick reads. They're enjoyable in what they set out to do, but I don't think they leave as much of an impression yeah, pretty much. I mean, look, if you're on the Mangamo app, both those series are on there. And if you're just looking for more stuff to read, they're, they're, they're available. Go go check them out. Uh, but I guess just to kind of move on to our last piece of Mangamo news, which is uh, actually which actually came out of uh, Anime News Network in particular. Uh, they they were having one of their uh, I don't know what you would call it, like a conference or something. I I, I can't think of the word right now. Wasn't so much a conference so much as one of these live stream interviews that Anon has been doing called Anon Connect. You know, just a series of interview with folks uh, in the industry. So yeah, I mean, it, it was this uh, was a, basically a big interview with Dallas Midah, just talking about Mongbo, the titles on the service where Dallas uh, came from in terms of being in the industry. You know, working at uh, Kadansha and a bunch of different publishers before, you know, finally starting Mangamo. And yeah, at the end of the 
panel, basically, he announced that they have indeed, you know, entered a licensing year with Dark Horse to not just get a lot of their manga titles like Lone Wolf and Cub and Appleseed, but also some of their American comics like Hellboy and Asagi Ojimbo. Oh, yeah. I think I might have missed that part of the news. That's that's really exciting in particular. Like, we're not just going to have manga on the Mangabo app. Now we're actually getting, like real western comics that's that's really cool i've uh i've never read yusaki yojimbo uh, but i've always wanted to so maybe i'll just start reading it through there and i've also i, st- I still need to get on to uh lone wolf and cub but yeah um i guess as far as like other dark horse stuff like i wonder i i, I wonder if this means that eventually maybe we'll get like stuff like uh berserk or like mob cycle 100 you know stuff like that i think that is very likely i would be surprised if it's not one of these titles that are also going to be on their way in the future because i mean these are just the starting titles when we'll come in appleseed i think definitely eventually we'll see a lot if not all of uh dark horses titles make their way out to mangabo but yeah, that's that's really exciting. I I can't wait to see like what more Dark Horse stuff ends up on the Mangamo app, and, and just in general, I think uh, I, I I think with the addition of Dark Horse's other comics and just whatever other comics can come to the Mangamo app, I and I mean we we'll, we'll we'll talk about this in in our upcoming segment here. But despite our few criticisms of the Mangamo app. I really, I really am looking forward to seeing like how this app shapes up in the future, and I think we can safely say that uh, the Mangamo app is really worth keeping an eye on, and uh, I really can't wait to see like how it grows in the future. I would agree, and I think you will agree that we really enjoy the series we talked about for this episode and i think our listeners will enjoy hearing us talk about them so time for some mo manga mo talk with our reviews of loving yamada at level 999 i want to be a girl and dropkick i'm a devil Manga, more manga, manga, more problems, at least uh, more things to read, because that's right, we are doing a special Manga Mo Spotlight Podcast. We're revisiting the Manga Mo app. We are looking at some of their only on Manga Mo exclusives, manga exclusive to the Manga Mo service. You can't read them anywhere else. And of those exclusive titles, we are going to talk about Street in particular. We're talking about Loving Yamada at level 999 by Mashiro. We're going to talk about Dropkick on My Devil by Yukiwo. And we're going to talk about I Wanna Be Your Girl by Takaze Umi. It's a cool section of three different series. There are more exclusives that we may talk about in future episodes. But I think these three were the ones that... I thought intrigued me the most in particular of the exclusives that they have been promoting. Mm-hmm. Hopefully if we, if we do another, I guess I should say when we do another Mangamo spotlight, I want to, uh, I want to, I want to pick the next three. Cause I, I definitely have some titles that, uh, I'm kind of eyeing myself, but, uh, we should, we should get started talking about these three. And, um, I think we decided we wanted to talk about loving Yamada first. I think that's a good one to start with because this one of the titles seems to be among the most popular. It definitely has 
a lot of buzz because it was the Tsukini Kuru or the up-and-coming Manga 2020 Award winner. It is a relatively new title. It began last year, last March 2019. And this and I Want to Be Your Girl both are serialized in the Ganma Manga app. Mm, okay. And Mangamo, out of all these series, Mangamo is the closest in catching up to this one. When I checked, I think they are 26 chapters in of 37 chapters that are out right now, at least from what I could find. So I think that this is the closest to being caught up with the Japanese release. And I think this is updated weeklies on Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is what is loving Yamada about? Yamada is about a college girl named Akane who gets dumped by her girlfriend, or she gets dumped by her boyfriend for another girl that they met each other in the same online RPG that Bochi and her ex played together, Forest of Savior. And he was a big gamer, so he introduced her to this game in the first place, and it was a thing that they bonded over, so that being what led to their breakup is kind of sad and ironic for her. But she decides to continue playing the game at a depressed stupor, logging back in and just rage leveling up in a spawning spot and she encounters a dude in there who wants to use a spawning spot to farm for a rare drop and Akane gets irked at that because he doesn't care about her problems and he's she's like no fuck you I'm using the spot right now you motherfucker <laughs> basically that's the tone of her reply and Yamada's like yeah you know I don't really care about your shit and that just makes her more upset and but Ultimately, while playing the game, she finds out that there's going to be a live event for the game. And so she decides to go to that event and look super pretty and cool and shit. So her ex will realize what a mistake he made dumping her. But when she actually gets there, her confidence is thrown off and she trips while trying to run to confront him. And then she has her shoe kind of picked up and given back to her by a hot but very cold dude. And after he tells her, I don't care about your problems, Akane recognizes that this must be the same dude she met in the game, Yamada. And then... Uh, she encounters her ex Takuma and his new GF Airy, and they're big Yamada fanboys, and they don't care that Akane's there at all. So she tries to lie and say, "Oh, hey, this Yamada guy is my new boyfriend," and it doesn't really work in the way she wants because her ex is like disappointed at first because he's a big fanboy of Yamada, like he responds to all his messages online like every he leaves a comment on everything he tweets about basically so he was dejected but unfortunately it doesn't have the effect that she wants Akane because she sees that his new GF and him have a good relationship because she like consoles him and stuff and he isn't even too broken up about it and later on it's revealed that he kind of figured it out immediately that it was a bluff so yeah, but she ends up drowning her sorrows with Yamada, and he shows that he can be considerate because he buys bandages to bandage up her ankles because she hurt her ankles after she tripped and fell. And then she basically is carried home after getting like drunk, drinking herself to sleep, back to Yamada's apartment, and... In the process of doing that, she loses a necklace that was important to her that was given to her by her ex. And Yamada accidentally breaks it by stepping on it. And it eventually comes to a point 
or rather, it's all leading up to this moment where Akane realizes that, hey, I need to start letting go of these things. These things that were important to me in the past, like I don't need them anymore and I need to move on from them. And this is complemented by a good metaphor, like in the game, it's revealed she has this kind of obsessive, like hoarding type personality because she stuffed the guild uh, stored space with a bunch of items that she thought she was being helpful keeping all these items, but it was really a hassle and an inconvenience for Yamada and other guild members because the storage space is limited. And yeah, so, she, you know, she gets the necklace back. It's broken. Like the heart, it's like a necklace with a heart on it. And the, Yamada literally broke the heart. Like it cracked into when he stepped on it. So, yeah, she gets that back, and then, like, her mom sends her all her old shit to her apartment because she wanted to convert her room into her own personal gym. And so she has to start throwing herself out, and that includes the necklace. She realizes, you know, she can't hold on to the past forever, she doesn't need this stuff anymore. And then afterwards, she and her best friend get drunk, and they visit Yamada's house to thank him and return the umbrella that he gave her. And basically, from there, Yamada uh, encourages her to continue playing the game, and she does. And she starts, you know, falling in love and developing feelings for him. And then the series goes from there in terms of, you know, Yamada and Akane, they grow and develop feelings for each other. And other characters who are a member of the guild and the game get involved and they all have interesting personalities interesting get things going on with them but yeah that's kind of the setup in a nutshell and it takes a few chapters to tell like this entire kind of setup to what the overall story is but the series develops in a pretty like page anyway like at the end of every chapter is like well what's gonna happen next i mean it helps that they're short chapters but like i definitely once i started reading this kept binging through the entire thing because it definitely just keeps going in terms of one event leading to the next mm-hmm. yeah i thought this was really cute i uh i liked what i read of it um full disclosure i uh i would have read more if um unfortunately when i was trying to read this series in particular i had a lot of trouble trying to load it on the mangamo app but uh Again, from 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 what I read of it, I think I read about like seven chapters or so. I really liked what I read of it, and uh, I do want to go back to uh, the kind of metaphor you were talking about earlier with her having uh, uh, not being able to let things go. Um, I thought that was very poignantly done, and uh, I thought that was like a little interesting facet about her character that was explored for a little bit. Because uh, I'm def- yeah. I'm also definitely the kind of person who like still has stuff like, you know, stuffed animals from, like, ex-girlfriends or whatever that, like, I just kind of like keeping because they're cute, but it's also like, man, I don't have enough... I, I, I'm I also kind of a pack rat, so, like, I, I totally I totally relate to this feeling in particular, but uh, yeah, I, um, it's th- this might be weird, because I, I haven't re- um, seen this other series, but um, this kind of reminds me of um, this kind of reminds me what I think, um, Recovery. MMO Junkie, yes, yeah, it's yeah. very similar to that in terms of this idea of these real-life characters meeting and then working out their real-life problems through interacting with a game and then interacting in real life. So, yeah, that's kind of immediately what came to mind, too. I think that Akane has very similar kind of issues to the main character of that series, okay. though she's not a neat, she has a friend already and stuff. 
So she's, like, more socially able, but she has this problem of not being able to, like, let go of things in her past and being obsessed with, like, especially her old relationships. Like, not only her most recent ex-boyfriend, but she later kind of thinks about, like, a high school, uh, her first crush that she confessed to. And is wondering, oh, I wonder what happened to him. It's like, and her friend Momo basically tells her, you know, you have a problem of getting carried away and just doing everything for your boyfriends or whatever they want to do and not really doing things for yourself or hanging out with your friends. Like, you basically give up everything and you invest all of yourself in these relationships with, you know, your boyfriends, but you don't really think about what you want and your own, what's going to make you happy and doing things that make you happy. And so that's a cool message that she needs to learn. And I like that this team of you need to stop prioritizing these old things over new ones. I like that it is a recurring team throughout the series with several different characters. This is reflected in Yamada himself, too, because Yamada has this baggage of he's not really able to get or he's not really comfortable getting close with women or being in relationships. Because when he was a kid, he accidentally hurt a girl who was his friend's feelings because he was insensitive towards like how she felt about him. And that gave him like a complex and made him like afraid of getting close to other people, especially you know, getting into relationships with women because he doesn't want to hurt people because he can be very blunt and he can be very ignorant of people's feelings. And this is also reflected in another character, Runa, who is, I guess this is a spoiler, but she's another member of the guild and she is just a middle school kid and she's also a person who is like very protective of her friend group like she is very antagonistic towards Akane when they first meet because her mindset is this was just a group of the four of us and then she came in and intruded in upon it and so she's like very territorial and like suspicious of Akane's attentions towards Yamada and her brother and so she tries to like run her out of the guild but basically, it gets to a point where she realizes, hey, you can't just keep trying to maintain, like, the status quo of, like, this thing that will always last forever in terms of, like, this core relationship between this friend group. Like, you gotta let other people in. You gotta start, you know, being open to making, you know, new friends. And she does eventually, you know, let her guard be broken down or, or start to break down her walls and become friends with Akane. And it becomes a very cute friendship between them uh, that leads to some of my favorite, like, chapters and interactions, like, just between Akane and Runa. Although, also, like, even though she does accept Akane as a friend, like, she's still, you know, very territorial of other people coming in because there's another person who joins the guild and some of the most recent chapters uploaded to Mangamo that she's like, oh, we got to run this person out here. I've got, I've written up this game plan of how we're going to chase this person out of the guild. Akane kind of is like, hey, no, you know, just like with me, you should try to get to know this person and, you know, you could, could become friends with her just like you become friends with me too. So 
Yeah, it's a good core team, I think, in this series reflected through different characters in different ways. Again, with the metaphor of like all the things that Akane stuffed in the guild's uh, treasure chest that, you know, she didn't want to get rid of and she thought she was being helpful, but it was really causing problems. Like, I think the series makes a lot of good metaphors in the game world. And I think it illustrates like the game world in an interesting way in terms of like representing these interactions that are happening like through chat, like just visually as like the characters in the game like interacting in the world with each other so i think it does that really well uh, i think it has like a lot of good balance between what how things that reflect are happening in the game reflect on real life uh the real life problems of these characters and their relationships and stuff and yeah again i really do like this idea of exploring this whole thing of like letting the past go and then embracing like things in your future and like not being scared or afraid to leave past things behind so honestly you know this ended up being probably the series i got the most invested in i really liked all three of the series but i think i can this like really really enjoying this the strongest because i really became fascinated with like all these characters and their relationships and then the core team i think is like the strongest like in terms of like its vision and execution so i'm really curious to see where this goes i think that my biggest uh, caveats for the series are some elements that could be considered problematic or questionable because Akane is a college student. I don't know how she is specifically, what year she's in, but Yamada is a third year high school student. So I, we don't know his age quite yet, but presumably he's like 17, 18. And Akane and Yamada are like starting to form like clearly a relationship or like they're they both have mutual feelings for each other so i just hope the age gap isn't like too big if it's like just two years apart i think that could be okay but it's just you know it's always like kind of a questionable thing to have a relationship story between you know a college age character and a high school age character and then another element that i it's like not really a problem, but it's just something that might give people pause. Like, hmm, I'm wondering what the story behind this character is. Is that one of the members of their guild is like, presumably he's like a middle-aged man because he's like kind of balding. But he's like a very kind of adorable and shy kind of character. Like, he's very nice and he's like kind of very... He has this kind of an innocent personality, I guess, because... Like, there's a point where Runa is, like, saying, man, I hate that Akane girl. Look at her getting so close to my brother and Yamada. What a bitch. And Takezo is like, oh my gosh, Runa-chan, where did you learn such a word? And it's like, you know, it's kind of adorable in that way. It's, like, very, very kind of genial. Like, so I just wonder what the story is, though, but with this guy, why he's hanging out with, like, these kids really in this guild so you know he's he's been a good guy there's like nothing weird with him but it's just it just the fact that like he's like an older adult character hanging out with kids is kind of something that you kind of have to think about it's like hmm hmm well i wonder what his story is but i think it's probably going to be kind of a cute story because it's he's a kind of a a cute character where he's supportive friendly character and 
Yeah. So, I, you know, there's the good... I think uh, he's just kind of like a, a child at heart kind of character because in the game he plays like a... Like kind of a joke species in the game that's like just a little puffy cloud with horns. But... And that's kind of cute. So maybe that's just like his... His personality He's just like really... He just likes playing the game for fun and then he hit it off with these characters and so he is part of their guild. But... Yeah, uh, overall, though, like, with some, like, potential caveats aside, there's, like, no fan service, there's no real uncomfortable power dynamic stuff, and all the characters are, like, really nice and likable, and even characters who, like, act mean at first, like, Runa becomes adorable and real have nice relationships with other characters pretty quickly on, so... I, I really uh, ended up getting endeared to, like, all the characters. I guess one other potentially questionable thing is that they refer to the guild master who plays a woman in the game, but is a dude in real life as a net comma, which I, I don't know, like, how uh, appropriate that is because people, you know, I just don't know if that is meant endearingly or is... It meant derogatorily, so that is something that might give pause. But again, the character himself is, like, very likable and a good person and, you know, treated pretty respectfully. And I do think, like, their explanation of, like, their ideas with gender are kind of interesting. And, like, how they present themselves and how they separate their online self and the real self. So I think the character is interesting in that respect, too. And... Yeah, I mean, overall, I, I just really got into this, into the characters and the overarching team, and I think that it probably had the funniest chapter out of all the series we've read today, even though the next series we're going to talk about is like a pure comedy, because one chapter involves, like, after Runa becomes friends with Akane and starts hanging out with her, like, there comes to a point where Akane's computer just crashes because of an update in the game, and so Runa brings Yamada over to fix the computer, and she sees, like, that there is something, you know, developing between them, and so she gets advice from her brother to, like, you know, kind of play Cupid with them and get them into, like, rom-com hijink shenanigans, and for what goes through Runa's mind when thinking about rom-com scenarios is, like, you know, the classic manga shades of, like, walking in on someone in a bad, running with toast in your mouth. Or lucky touching and so she tries to go like engineer situations for that to happen between Akane and Yamada but she like fails every time because she like first she's like asks Akane hey do you are you gonna are you gonna take a bat and Akane's like no and then she gets disappointed then she asks Yamada and Yamada says no so then she tries the toasting and she just like makes toasts and she just like puts it in Akane's mouth and Akane of course is confused she doesn't know what's going on and she just eats the toast and then Yuna gets upset at her and she's like why did you eat the toast because <laughs> she she wanted Akane to run with the toast in her mouth like in manga and Akane's confused like what why would you give me the toast if you didn't want me to eat it and then Finally, she just tries to, like, push Akane onto Yamada so they could do a lucky, lucky touching thing. So that, that was really funny. It's just, like, the idea of, like, this middle school kid, their idea, like, you know, engineering romantic scenarios all come from, like, rom-com uh, manga. And they're trying to, like, 
play Cupid with like their friends by trying to make those situations happen. That was really funny to me. Uh, definitely very much endeared me to like the, the friendship between Akane and Runa too, because like I do like that Runa is like like this little kid and Akane is like this older sister, you know, type friend, you know, kind of encouraging her and kind of uh, being like a supportive person to her, but also like you know. She also, uh, I think it's just a fun dynamic between them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I, I feel kind of bad. I didn't uh, have the chance to kind of read more of this, but uh, from the very little I've read and from what you're telling me, I, I would definitely read more of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to more, and it seems like this is the one that's gonna hopefully get caught up to where it is in Japan the quickest. So hopefully. We will continue to get chapters at a good pace and get caught up. Uh, like, I'm definitely really, really enjoying it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but why don't we talk about Dropkick on My Devil next? Yes, this is the oldest series of the three we're talking about today. It began in, like, April 2012. It's serialized in Comic Media Magazine. It goes at a monthly pace. There's, like, 84 chapters, I think, in Japan. And it even has an anime, I think. Oh, yeah, it has two seasons of anime with a third on the way. Oh, wow. And the first season of the anime is on Amazon Prime. The second season is on Crunchyroll. Uh, the third season is going to come out in 2022. So this is a pretty spa- successful one since, you know, it's already gotten two seasons and it has a third confirmed. And it is, yeah, kind of interesting that this is probably one of the bigger titles then because of that anime success. And it is kind of a short form series, though, like chapters aren't very long, they're only 10 pages ish volumes, just by like how the volume breakdowns in the upload of the first chapter goes, that also seems pretty short, because I guess like, with the amount of uh, pages and the amount of chapters that are put in a volume, I guess it's probably not more than 120 pages of volume, which is interesting. So... If they were ever to license this for print, I'd imagine they'd double up on those and release it in omnibus form. I can see that, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, Mangamo has about 24 chapters plus a side story, so the count in the app is a little bit skewed to read 25, but uh, in terms of n- main number chapters, there are 24. And the plot of this series is that it is about a college-age, like, gothic Lita mages, or at least she's, like, someone who's, like, really interested in black magic and demons and stuff and horror movies. So one day she, like, encounters a grimoire in a used bookstore. She brings it home and tries summoning a demon just for fun. And so she summons a serpentine again, like, evil god called devil chan and she really doesn't have a plan after something devil chan she just wanted to see if she could do it so devil chan gets upset at that and wants to be returned back to the underworld but the return spell is in the second part of the grimoire which she doesn't have and isn't at the bookstore so unless they get that book they can't use the return spell to send her back and she can't go back on her own because demons summoned by humans can't return on their own. Only demons who like go between the worlds willingly can do that. So the only other way for her to return back to the underworld is for the summoner of a demon to be killed. So uh, Devil Chan wants to basically kill Yurine because if she kills Yurine, she'll get to go home. But Yurine 
is way stronger than Devil Chan, as Devil Chan likes to compare. She, Devil Chan's a big fan of Street Fighter, so she compares Yurine to Blanca as your seventh CPU opponent in Street Fighter 2 to begin her. <laughs> That's like the power differential between her and Yurine. Like, she's very strong and she's very sadistic and cruel to Devil Chan when she, Devil Chan is like trying to murder her basically because every time she fails at that like you're gonna violently punishes her like by using her machete or various other violent weapons and they'll go as far as like chopping off her tail or stabbing her through the stomach like throwing her like through with a somersault through a window there's a chapter where she just literally leaves her to bleed out yeah like, basically crucifies her and lets her bleed out. Yeah, and Devil Chan, of course, being a demon, can't really die from any of this and always regenerates. Like, there's one chapter where a frost demon that Devil Chan bullies, you know, just freezes her into ice, and then she just breaks in two. And Irene's like, oh, can she recover from that? And the demon's like, yeah. So, like, you can do all sorts of things to devil chan and she's gonna regenerate and be fine and be back to her conspiring ways of trying to kill and uh, urine so basically that's just the premise it's like this this slapstick kind of tom and jerry-esque kind of uh premise of devil chan wants to kill urine and urine you know just foils her at every turn and then sometimes just outright messes with her like the chapter with the magic wand which the entire <laughs> the entire punchline is to make devil chan just think that she can actually use the wand to transform and urine tricks her into saying i'm an idiot and thinking that that is the transformation spell but it's just to make devil chan look like an idiot so that was a great like the parts where like uh urine is like messing with devil chan like even the non-violent parts are really amusing and besides the main two characters there are a few other supporting characters mainly medusa who is like devil's friend she's kind of like you know she's a demon she's kind of a more innocent hearted kind of demure more moe type girl she wears a paper bag over her head in the human world so like human beings don't turn to stone looking at her uh it doesn't affect other supernatural beings like devil is fine but it affects normal humans but it doesn't affect urine because urine you know found out that medusa was coming and so she just wore a special bracelet she got off of street wonder and Aki Ibra. so and i like the joke that it's like wait there are street wonders who can give you a stone bracelet that can prevent Medusa's powers working, and Yurini's like, yeah, in this manga, there are. So <laughs> that was a good, that was a good fourth wall throwaway there. But yeah, I mean, the Medusa and Devil chapters are like interesting because, like, basically, Devil uses Medusa kind of as a scapegoat for all her problems. Like, both as an accomplice and a scapegoat because whenever her problems fail. Like, she tries to put all the blame on Medusa and say, oh, no, 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 this, this scheme was happened, uh, Medusa came up with it, not me, punish her. Yeah, she's but not of a course, very good Rune friend. never buys it. No, their relationship reminds me of uh, Lum's relationship with Ron in your Sayatsura when they were kids and how Lum would get into a bunch of, like, trouble and they, she would always put the blame on Ron, like, wetting the bed or, like, daring Ron to, like, go on a race with her and then she gets hurt because she gets, you know, smashed into a cliff and then 
Elam says, oh, well, I'll go, I'll, I'll pay for some ice cream for you. Or we'll go get some ice cream. And then Ron's like, wait. And then Lam says, okay, now you pay for your half. And Ron's like, wait a minute. I thought you were going to pay for me. And Lam's like, no. And so it's like that kind of relationship to me. It's like this kind of sort of a like friendship where one person is exploiting the other. Uh, but like Medusa is kind of, she's both naive to the fact that uh, Devil is kind of using her, but she also likes the idea that Devil can't do anything without her. Like, there's a chapter where they do get into a fight, and in this chapter, like, Devil is, like, uh, upset because, oh, I I need my relationship with Medusa because she's, like, my ATM. I need to borrow money from her, <laughs> and she gives me all the stuff. And the chapter resolves, like, basically with Medusa coming back to pick Devil up after she's, like, gone off drinking and is like down her luggage just like saying okay i know you can't do anything without me come on i'll go and we'll go get something to eat and i'll pay for it and urania is like my oh man this is like really sad like urania recognizes the relationship as being the abusive friendship that it is but for better or worse devil janet medusa are like both pretty entrenched in it and of course there's also an element of like devil being kind of worried that medusa if she like becomes more higher level than her because demons get higher leveled uh when they basically succeed in killing things or through other like competition kind of things it seems so uh, there comes a point where like medusa has leveled up past devil but she doesn't let medusa know that because otherwise like she's worried that if medusa levels up too much higher than her then she won't look up to her anymore and basically then like she is the most afraid of being looked down on by medusa so i think devil has an interesting complex in general about like wanting to be respected but really not being like she thinks she's like hot shit but she's really a minor demon and she's not really as powerful or a uh, significant a person in like the demon world as she thinks she is so that's an interesting aspect of her character but yeah i think the devil medusa friendship quote-unquote is interesting because there's like different layers of how like abusive and problematic it is but of course this is like kind of a comedy manga so it's like all kind of hand waved away with a laugh basically but it is very funny oftentimes uh and then aside from medusa there's picora who is like a scary looking angel and she reminds me the most of Anzu in Hinamatsuri, the relationship between Anzu and Hina in that show is kind of similar to like Picora and Devil, because Picora is like this angel who like wants to destroy Uranae, Devil, and Medusa because they're evil beings, but she lost her halo, so she doesn't have any powers and she's just an normal human. And she also doesn't have like any money. And so now she's like kind of homeless and scrimping and scouting for food. And she lives in a cardboard box under the bridge. And whenever it's like she encounters devil devil, because she is stronger than her, like she can like bully Picora a bit, but then ultimately Yurene intervenes and punishes devil and then offers a helping hand to Picora, like offering her some chicken after like devil stole like the food Picora was eating. And then, yeah, so, like, she has only shown up a little bit in the chapters uh, we've read so far, but I think that her dynamic with the other characters is also pretty amusing. 
But those are basically the main characters. There's only like four really prominent recurring characters. And yeah, the formula is pretty simple. Uh, as described before, it's just like, you know, Devil is trying to kill Yurine and then she inevitably fails and gets punished. And alternatively, there are chapters where Devil and Yurine are just trying to do, are just hanging out or doing something like... Uh, there is a chapter where, like, it's hot, so Devil gets, like, a frost demon from uh, the underworld to try and cool the place down. And so there are just some hijinks evolving, like, the frost demon and her powers. And then there's a chapter where, like, Devil is trying to uh, track Urine down at her part-time job in Akihabara. And then she just gets caught up in, like, doing things in Akihabara. So there are, there are chapters that break format like that, but mainly uh, it has a pretty simple slapstick format. Mm-hmm. See, now, go- going into this series, I um, I didn't do, like, a ton of research on it beforehand. So, like, I like I, I, I knew that it had an anime, and that's kind of the most I knew about it. Like, I, I kind of just, I, I weirdly just kind of expected this to be, like, uh, to be like a really like uh cutesy kind of very moe kind of show almost for whatever reason um because i didn't know anything about it going in like i i wasn't expecting it to be as violent or as cynical as it could be sometimes and i yeah. I, I think i think that really saved it for me like i i really like i really like how violent urine can be against uh devil chan it makes for some pretty good gags i think I especially like the one chapter where Devil Chan's idea for trying to kill Yurine for that particular chapter is to just hit her over the head with a crowbar. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's just that it's, was it's great. just so violent and like not a creative way to like kill her at all. It's like yeah, I'm just I'm, I'm just gonna kill her while she's watching a movie. <laughs> But I love that the reasoning for that is that she was watching a lot of, like, human movies, and a crowbar is commonly found at the scene of the crime or involved in, like, murders and, like, TV and movies, and so she gets the idea, oh, crowbars are an important tool or a tool that is really effective in killing humans, so I'm going to use a crowbar to kill Yurune. (laughs) So I like her warped logic there. That was really funny. But she has, like, just interpreted, like, these tropes and cliches and TV and thinks that's how reality actually works. Yeah, I, I also I also like that this is the kind of manga that, like, knows it's a manga and it could just kind of get away with whatever. Like, uh, I, I, I kind of like the chapter where Devil Chan is, like, following Yurine to try to figure out, like, what her new part-time job is. And, like... Uh, while I was reading it, I was thinking, like, is nobody, like, surprised that there's just this, like, half-snake woman roaming around Japan in public? Uh, but I-, I-, I like how one of Yurine's co-workers sees her, and she tries to tell her friends about it, but her friend's like, oh, it's just, it's Akihabara, you know? Like, weird stuff happens and shows up here all the time, essentially. Like, I, I-, I like I like how they just kind of hand-wave that a little bit. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, just the two part of that joke where it's the first she's saying, oh, I saw a woman who had like a lower half was a snake body and the other person's like, oh, it's Hakahapra. <laughs> and then the other part is like, but she was uh, half naked on top and she's like, well, it's Hakahapra. <laughs> so like that, that was great. It's like, it's, Akihabara is a place where it's so normal, I guess, to see people cross dress or just be 
uh, provocative, so no one bats an eye at Devil Chuck. They probably just think it's a really good cosplay, probably. Yeah, I mean, this isn't the world that takes the weirdness too seriously. Like, no one's, like, freaking out about it. People are pretty accepting of, like, oh, Devil Chan is a person in this world. And she's, like, this this half-snake woman who is topless all the time. But, yeah. It's, like, a mean-spirited, violent slapstick comedy, but I enjoy the gags and I enjoy... The, the pacing of it, I think it hits a lot of great comedic beats. And I think it works because, you know, Yurine can be really cruel to Devil Chan, but Devil Chan generally deserves it because she is kind of a piece of shit. And Yurine isn't heartless because she does offer, like, helping hand and is sympathetic towards other characters like Medusa and Pecora and the Frost Demon that Devil is bullying. So Yurine is sometimes justified in, like, her you know, cruelty towards Devil Chan because she is generally a nice person to other characters who aren't, you know, terrible people. Yeah, I, when I was reading this, I was like, oh man, she kind of slaps Devil Chan around a lot, but then I was immediately like, well, she is trying to kill her, so okay, I guess it's kind of justified, you know? Yeah, I mean, especially also in Medusa chapters, like, when you see the way uh, devil treats medusa like whatever is coming to devil in those chapters is very much deserved especially whenever she tries to like push the problem onto medusa or when she tries to like demand some money from medusa or whatever like yeah i think that is another aspect that makes it work and it also helps that like generally like innocent characters like medusa aren't like inconvenienced or hurt too badly in the series like medusa and the frost demon like they end up with the win at the end of the chapter usually yeah yeah um i mean in general i i wasn't expecting the series to be so funny so i really enjoyed it actually because usually it takes me it takes me a bit for me to get into, like, comedy or gag manga. Um, but I, I, I think by, like, chapter 7, when uh, when we get to that chapter where where Yurine, you know, tricks Devil Chan into using the magic wand, I think that was around the point where I was like, okay, this is actually, this is actually pretty funny. I'm, start, I'm starting to really like this. Um, but, yeah, I mean, overall, I, I was very surprised by, like, how much I liked this. Because I was... I, I admittedly, I, I had like a very like, uh, I guess, shallow view of like what I thought the series was going to be like another like, very cutesy moe kind of thing that I wasn't going to like very much. So I, I was very pleasantly surprised by this. Yeah, I thought it would be a really fun little slapstick comedy. and It did turn out to be like that. And now I... I'm definitely looking forward to chapters, and I also may check out the anime version. Too. Yeah, I, I might, I might check out the anime for this at some point. Actually, I, I would like honestly, I could, I could see why this has an anime. Like this, this, this definitely makes for, I'm sure, what is a very fun show to watch every week to week. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I want to read the series because I knew of the series. But I hadn't heard too much talk about it because, I mean, of course, originally the first year was Amazon Prime and that probably limited a lot of talk about it. Oh, yeah. But also I have heard mixed scenes because it is a type of comedy because the characters are generally like the main two characters generally can be like pretty unlikable and mean. Like there is something that turns a lot of people off this kind of comedy. 
But it, it does appeal to me because of like the elements like we discussed before, like what makes it work in terms of like this slapstick in this world that, you know, can is pretty ultimately, you know, it runs like cartoon logic. So anything that any abuse that Devil Chan takes, like she gets recovered and, you know, heals up by the next chapter and stuff. So yeah, it's it is like, you know, classic Looney Tunes Tom and Jerry in that way, in terms of that those interactions between characters. So I enjoyed it and uh yeah. So I think that it appeals to me, and if it, that sounds appealing to you, uh, I think it definitely is a, like a fun read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I definitely agree. But I think we should move on to "I Want to Be Your Girl." Yes, this is the other probably most popular series of these three that we're going to talk about alongside Loving Yamada, I Want to Be Your Girl by Takase Umi. And this is one that I'd heard talk about so much and I was so excited to read when I found out it was on Mangamo back when Mangamo launched. And this is a relatively more recent manga. It began in, you know, summer of 2018. And like mentioned before, it also runs in the Ganma Manga app. And currently, Mangamo is about 15 chapters in, and I think there are 50 chapters overall uh, right now. So it's a little bit behind, and I think this updates bi-weekly on Wednesdays, it looks like. But the main premise of I Want to Be Your Girl, and I think one of the reasons that, you know, it was so talked up for a long time before it finally got you know picked up by Mangamo, and uh, one of the reasons that's very intriguing it is a story about a trans girl like entering high school but more specifically it's kind of about her and her her best friend like trying to be supportive of her friend as she enters high school like uh, the main character is a Hime, and you know she you know is very close with her friend akira and she was like kind of immediate accepting of akira when she came out to her as a trans girl and so that happened like when they were like entering middle school and now as they're entering high school like akira is finally ready to come out publicly as a as a woman and enter high school wearing a girl's uniform but in her first day she encounters a lot of transphobia a lot of people who are very mean and inconsiderate even the teacher is not really helping situation because she is like oh you know you as a class will decide like how to handle this situation so it's like doesn't she not really supportive of oh sorry i was just gonna say doesn't she literally call it like a phase at one point yeah like she's very dismissive of akira's identity like she doesn't really seem to get it He's like, oh, you will either accommodate this or you will decide by yourselves like how you're going to treat it. Like, I mean, her she starts off by saying like she is male, but she started to think that she'd like to be a girl. She, she clearly does not understand what it means to be a, a trans woman. Like she's not male. She's a woman. So, yeah, she's. She, she's not, I guess she thinks she's being well-meaning, but the teacher is like, actually has still pretty transphobic, but it, it, it's, it's, yeah. it's kind of, it's kind of along s- sort of the same lines as like people who think like your sexual orientation is just like a choice you decided one day. Yeah, essentially. Like she think that's kind of the logic. It's like, oh, you are, 
you're choosing to dress up like this. You're choosing to be this way rather than, no, this is how she's always felt. And now she's allowing herself to express herself in the way that she feels comfortable. But basically, Hime gets really pissed off on uh, Kira's behalf. And, you know, Akira is having a lot of doubts uh, after, you know, this very kind of difficult first day and experiencing all the transphobia and thinking that maybe like she should just wear the boy's uniform that her father got for her. But Hime is like, no, don't give up courage. And Hime basically takes the boy's uniform from Akira and decides to wear it herself and go to school wearing a boy's uniform kind of as a statement to like, get people to accept Akira and saying like if they're going to exclude you then they'll have to exclude me too and that causes some kerfuffle and some you know discrimination on her behalf eventually though they do get into station where like there's this cat in the classroom and then both Akira and him catch it and then after that you know it seems that the class starts to warm up to them it seems that they are starting to warm up to treating them well in the classroom. And there also is this point of like one of the reasons why like Hime does this is because she thinks like everyone is against Akira. She thinks she sees like everyone like as potential enemies and with a conversation uh, with her teacher like at first it seems like the teacher is another like this is a male teacher uh sasaki sensei like in the first when she first goes to school with the boys uniform and she goes to this class with this teacher like he's like you know if you want to play dress up and like cause a disruption then go somewhere else so you think that he is also like another transphobic person but then they have a conversation and it reveal that it's not really like that like he takes teaching seriously but he also does care about his students and he's like you know he is fairly accepting of them but he tells her basically gives her this advice that she isn't going to be able to win anyone over if she only antagonizes them and passes judgment on other people and how other people think before trying to reach out to them or trying to like make connections with other people so that's kind of a lesson that he may eventually learns not strolling through this interaction but later as they start to become friends with another girl in the class Anzu who loves cute things and originally is drawn to Akira because she finds her cute but Anzu accidentally kind of hurts Akira's feelings by calling by there comes this joke that comes up of like because uh Hime gets very jealous and possessive and clingy when like Anzu is kind of trying to befriend Akira they eventually kind of make a joke about oh man you know wouldn't you be better off if you were dating me instead of her and then she's like you know uh, you should be my boyfriend so like that kind of reveals that she doesn't quite get the way Akira sees herself and then that makes Hime think that, oh, no, this is the person that, you know, Akira can't be ever be friends with because she she doesn't see her the right way and to see her the way I do. But, you know, she has a conversation with uh, Anzu's friend Yuka and is like, hey, you know, don't automatically pass judgment on uh, Anzu too because, you know, she is she can speak her mind and she can like uh, be much at times, but she isn't like 
necessarily like a bad person and you should try and kind of get to know us a little better before writing us off. And she also makes Hime realize that, oh, she's getting angry on Akira's behalf, but that may, might not be doing her as much good as she thinks, because it might just be pushing people away and pushing potential friends away. And that's kind of, with this interaction with Anzo and Yuka and then becoming friends, that's kind of what she learns, is that she's been very, like, uh, mistrusting of other people and whether they'll accept, like, Akira. And she's also just be, been very possessive of her because she is in love with her and she felt good that she was kind of like this special person to Akira like the person that she first confided herself in and has spent the most time with so having other people kind of step in and befriend her is kind of making her feel like self-conscious and a little lonely but then she kind of recognizes that's how she's feeling and she basically overhears a conversation like, you know, he, uh, Kira confronts Ansu about like what she said to her about like asking to be her boyfriend. And it's like saying, hey, I'm not a boy and you can't tell how people are just by the way they look. And, you know, they basically have a good conversation where Ansu tells her, hey, you know, I'm sorry. And you know what? If you have something to say, don't bottle it up. Say it. Get angry. You know, you should be a little selfish and speak out for yourself. So, you know, they eventually become friends and Ansu and Yuka, you know, become their friends. Uh, and then where the story is now is that Akira has become the manager of a soccer club because she developed a crush on one of the players. And that's also making he may be a little uh, self-conscious and have mixed feelings because, you know, she is in love with Akira. And so she is like afraid of losing Akira and potentially as like someone she's in love with. But also, she recognizes that she can't hold Akira back from things because of her own feelings, like, selfishly like that. So she is just kind of in a mixed state right now. And then she's kind of talking. She's kind of been confiding in Yuka about some of her feelings because Yuka has seen through the fact that she loves Akira. And now where the series is most recently left off is that, like, Yuka is kind of confiding in her about, like, you know, her being like in the how like her previous love woes in middle school, like why she's not on the track team anymore because she had a crush on like her fellow teammates. So that's also leading in interesting directions. But uh, yeah, there's, you know, a lot going on in the series. But the basic setup is basically like this girl, she is in love with her best friend who is a trans girl who's just trying to, you know, present herself in the world like be open out and about and like make friends and like make new connections and then he may has to just be comfortable with allowing akira the freedom to make new connections and realizing that she can't be as overprotective and possessive of her and she has to reconcile those feelings of being in love with her and being her friend and then just you know, allowing her to grow on her own and even if that means potentially getting hurt Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this series out of the three uh, is, is was probably my favorite, actually, just because I was again, th- this was a premise I was not expecting. Like, I really, yeah, I, I didn't know anything about this going in. So I, I thought this was just going to be another straightforward uh, 
like high school rom-com kind of thing but yeah this ended up being a lot more interesting than i thought it was going to be and honestly like i think this series needs a print release because i think you know i think people would like really eat this up uh, like i i think the series could really find a big audience i think if uh if 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 given enough uh exposure yeah i mean it already has a lot of buzz in online you know lgbtq manga reading circles like people have been talking this up since this came out this is why i know about it it's like i've seen it go around i've seen like you know some of the unofficial releases the scanlations you know being thrown around so i was very excited and happy and super enthusiastic about this finally being added to an official platform and i really do hope it gets print release because i really do enjoy the series a lot uh, I think that there are some elements of it that I I just don't know where it's going with it yet, but there's just some assumption of, like, this idea that, oh, like, you know, being trans or gay or whatever isn't, like, is, like, a disruption to this task so you need to give other people time to accept you. I think that is not a good, very good idea to place all the burden on a you know queer character to like make other people accept them rather than other people just being more accepting so that's an that's an idea that i may have issue with depending on where it goes but one thing that i do appreciate uh is that like very quickly it has addressed this idea that you know him is having that oh i'm in love with akira but i see but akira is a girl so if i am in love with akira does that mean i still see her as a boy and then yuka's very much when she tells this to yuka yuka's like what are you talking about like what no i love her face too and her response is like what the fuck are you talking about kind of face <laughs> it was so good and yuka's like uh obviously not like what does that make gay people so you could go on this conversation of like, why do you like Akira? Do you like, did you like her because she was a boy initially? Or what is it about her that you liked about her? And then he may be able to recount like all these things about Akira's personality and just the kind of person she is that she loves. And that makes her realize, oh, no, I'm in love with Akira for Akira. And I was kind of just, and so it's not this matter of like, I'm not seeing her for who she really is, which is what she was afraid of, but she really is. And like gender, just that isn't like an aspect of it. So she's kind of become comfortable being queer herself now because, because she is attracted to uh, Akira. So that's really nice to see that happen so quickly too, because I was worried that this would be kind of a, oh, but we're both girls. I can't be in love with her. I was worried that would be a thing that would persist a little longer. But so I'm glad that's resolved and I'm glad that we have like another like out queer character in Yuka who is also like there to kind of, uh, help guide both Hime and Akira. But even though she is also working through like comes some of her own problems with past like, you know, failed relationships with people or you know i don't really know like where uh her story is going because the most recent chapter is her like telling uh Hime that you know she quit the track team because she was in love with her teammate so i'm curious to see where that story goes and like whether she was like rejected or discriminated against or whether she just couldn't like reconcile having those feelings and like still being in the club but yeah i mean i'm very interested in that so, yeah, I mean, I thought I was going to really love this, enjoy this, and I really have. 
I guess one thing that might disappoint people is just that, you know, this isn't really a story from Akira's perspective, like as a trans girl, like trying to find acceptance to be accepted. Like this is definitely told through Hime's perspective and Hime is queer herself, but um, she's not trans. So that might be something that might disappoint people potentially, but you know, it still is dealing with very interesting themes and especially like this themes of like, you know, how to be a good ally and how to not let like your own like feelings or own assumptions, like cloud your judgment and potentially like make problems for the person you're trying to help. I think that, those are good lessons that the series is kind of getting into with like him and realizing that the way she is like being very like confrontational and immediately reactionary to people is not necessarily helping make Akira be accepted in the classroom any easier. Whereas Akira by herself, like confronting Anzu and like, you know, working through the misunderstanding and then event being able to befriend Ansu through that was something that, you know, through like her own action, she was able to, you know, resolve the situation. And that's something that might not have been able to happen if Hime had like kept interjecting and trying to separate them. So I like that Hime is kind of realizing how to be a better ally and how to keep her own like feelings and assumptions of other people in check too. Like her own kind of mistrust of how other people will feel. And I appreciated like the series is also like very up and about it. Like, you know, society does want to box people into like, like male or female specific gender, but like gender and presentation and identity is way more complicated than that. So, you know, you should give yourself the time to figure this stuff out and like why and how you want to present yourself to the world. And uh, I appreciated that message too. So I appreciate the teacher Sasaki Sensei also for being like a good kind of mentor figure looking out for students and like giving them generally pretty good advice and pretty uh, healthy advice. So yeah, there's a lot of good things. Uh, there are a lot of good messages in there uh, alongside some I might find questionable, but I have to see like where they ultimately fall on those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you brought it up earlier, but there's definitely a misdirect there where, like, at first you think, like, oh, he's a transphobe or whatever for, uh, because of the thing he said to, uh, uh, to Hime earlier. But really, when you think about it, like, yeah, I, I like that the series, you know, again, like you said, deals with, you know, how, how, how do you, how do you be a good, an actual good ally? And, like, how do you, mm-hmm. how do you do that? Because I, because uh, they, they they kind of um, I think they kind of bring it up during their conversation about in a way where you know you could argue like you know uh, Hime thinks she's being supportive by uh, dressing in clothes you know opposite of her gender you know dressing in the boys' uniform uh, as a show of like solidarity and support but like you know when you really think about it like she she is actually just playing dress up like she herself isn't trans. Again, whereas with uh, Akira, you know, she's not playing dress up like she she is a girl, you know, and there's there's that kind of difference in there, too. So even even just kind of down to that, like, you know, she she's she's coming from a good place. And that's very obvious. But again, I, I, I do like I do like that this is a manga, you know, actively uh, tackling, you know, how how to actually be a good ally. Uh, and I, I think I think that's interesting. And I also I also like that, you know, we we kind of have we kind of have this thing where it's like, 
you know, obviously there are a lot of transphobes out there, but like, you know, I, I like how they tackle like, hey, like you can't you can't just automatically assume that about everybody. Like some people will be understanding. And I think, you know, I, I think um I don't know, that that just uh, that just made me feel really good. Like, hey, like there the this this series has like hope in like at least some people that like, you know, not everybody is going to be like that. Some people will actually be understanding and accepting, and I think I think that's something that a lot of people can easily forget. Because we unfortunately don't see it as much in the real world, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that the series does handle the kind of setting that they're in. And like both the bigotry that Akira faces, but also some of the acceptance that she's found and kind of the mixed levels of that very well. Mm -hmm. Because there are... There are varying levels to the degree of how much people understand Akira's identity and respect that. Because, you know, the person she has a crush on, Hasegawa, he does respect her identity in the sense that he uses, like, she, her pronouns when referring to her. Even when, like, his douchey teammates are, like, joking about her using male pronouns. But at the same time, he might not necessarily be as kind of person as you may think yeah and so that's something that's going to be interesting to see like where that goes and of course similarly we have the situation with Anzu where like Anzu like wanted to befriend Akira because she likes you know cute things and she thought Akira was really cute and she, she was into the fact that Akira is wearing like you know a girl's school uniform but she didn't quite understand that Akira doesn't see herself as a boy so the boyfriend comic was very hurtful to her but she was able to understand that after you know kira confronted her about it and made her understand you know that was hurtful so i appreciated that as well and another strength i think of the series is that it is kind of like rare to see a depiction of a trans woman in kind of the early stages of her transition and especially with a body type like akira's like oftentimes uh trans characters in media are either either they look like they pass very easily or they don't and akira is kind of in the middle in that respect but and i know that you know uh i had seen a mutual of mine uh, in a shared discord that I go to who is trans herself and she was very happy to find this manga in Akira because it was rare to see the picture of like a trans woman character who doesn't automatically look like they pass like in the traditional stereotypical like anime girl way but like is like in the early stages of her transition so you know I I think that that is also something you don't see often and I did appreciate that aspect of it as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did. I didn't. I didn't think about it like that. But yeah, that that is that is very realistic. I think because that is a challenge. Like, like obviously, people come in all shapes and sizes and all body types, and so this very idea of passing in of itself is problematic because who is to say like who looks like a man who looks like a woman like that very idea is incredibly questionable and based on like sexist gendered assumptions but it is like something that gets brought up is that if you don't look feminine enough uh, as a trans person people will misgender you so like there are certain body types that are able to pass more easily than others and Akira has a body type that isn't 
quite as easy to pass with being very tall and broad shouldered. So it is more challenging for her. And so she does get misgendered a lot in these early chapters. And I, you know, she's just starting to begin her transition. Like she's just, uh, you know, starting to dress in feminine clothes. And, you know, I don't think she's, you know, started on HRT or anything yet. So, you know, it's going to be a process. So, yeah, I think that is like something that, is rare to see kind of depicted in manga in this way or in a manga that I have read so far in this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, but yeah, I'm as, as far as like, you know, whether I'd keep reading or not. Oh yeah. I definitely, I definitely want to keep reading this time. I'm very interested in seeing how the rest of this series goes for sure. Yeah. I think if you are a huge fan of like LGBT kaidos that really deal with both the challenges that LGBTQ people face, but also with the optimism that, you know, that we can find acceptance and the world is changing. I think that, you know, this is a title alongside Love Me For I Am and Arguments of Dusk that, you know, deals with those uh, themes very well. And I think like Love Me For I Am, there are some areas where I'm sure, and I know that some people find, uh, aren't addressed as well and find, may find like unsatisfying so far, but I do think that the series heart is in its right place. I think the characters are really well fleshed out and felt sympathetic. And I think that it has a lot of good messages so far. So I definitely highly recommend it. If you were a fan of, again, like really uh, trailblazing LGBTQ manga series. I mean, there's a reason that I've seen this talked about so much. And I'm so glad that people are finally getting a chance to read it in official capacity. And yeah, I mean, obviously I expected that I would really enjoy this going to it. And I have, I mean, I, I guess my only expectation, that was uh, betrayed was that I did end up enjoying another series of this match even more slightly, but still, this is a very, very strong recommendation from me as well. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think out of all these series, it's it's so hard for me because I, I I really enjoyed this one, but I also really enjoyed Dropkick My Devil a lot. Like that series, I like I said, I, I wasn't expecting to be as funny as it was, and I like. It's it's kind of weird. I think by like a small margin, I might actually seek more of that out. Actually, um, again, by a very slim margin, I think I might actually like that. I I think I actually enjoyed that series the most. And you know, loving Yamada, I think I would definitely read more of as well. But that's also a series I would rather like let build up more. I guess. Mm-hmm. I think with all three of these series, you know, they're all very short chapters. Yeah. So they may be best enjoyed through a binge. But either way, I do think that I will probably continue to keep up with them as new chapters come out because I am like pretty invested in Yamada and Dropkick in particular. So I'm like, oh man, I really want to see where the story goes next in those. So, oh, I mean, I want to be your girl and Dropkick. Uh, I mean, I want to be your girl and Yamada. <laughs> Dropkick, I think, is one like I would come back to time to time. Uh, but like that is like also the way it's structured is like, yeah, I mean, one chapter every now and again is a good little treat for a minute. And then uh, it, because it's episodic, it's pretty easy to just drop drop in on drop kick every now and again. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, all, all these were really good. I, I have to I have to give you props again. Like I said, I had very little expectations to. Oh, man, I don't know if I'm really going to like this or not. 
but I, I ended up liking all of these, so I, I, th- I think you picked some really good ones. Yeah, I mean, I basically picked the ones that Mangamo Spotlight in their press release is like they're only on exclusive titles. The only two that we excluded were Reset Game and Araminta Gerard, and Araminta Gerard is a series that all of it's on Mangamo now, but it's like a series that had been previously published by Togepop. And if we were going to cover that, we might as well just do a podcast on that because it's so long. And then Reset Game is another interesting one that we may do in a future Mangamo Chicken. But like the three that interested in me and I thought at least I was thought I would really enjoy, but I'm glad you have really enjoyed as well, like were these three. And I, I'm glad that I did end up and we didn't end up enjoying all of them really, really well. Oh, yeah. Um, and like I said, ho- hopefully we can uh, we can come back to Manga Mo at some point because uh, I, I definitely want to do an episode where I get to pick up a few myself because, like I said, there are, there are definitely a lot of other series on Manga Mo that, uh, that I really want to check out. But for now, uh, I, I think it's safe to say that like we both really recommend checking out Manga Mo. We, we talked about the app on the show before. Um, it's only about four ninety nine a month to basically read whatever they have on there. Uh, you'll get access to pretty much everything that they have on the app. Um, you know, b- besides their exclusives, they also have a lot of stuff from Kodansha, so you can read uh, a ton of chapters from stuff like Attack on Titan, Fire Force, uh, Yamada and the Seven Witches. Like, but basically, whatever's owned by Kodansha uh, in particular is probably going to be on that app. Um, and yeah, uh, I think it's safe to say we, we definitely recommend checking out the app if you haven't already. Um, you know, if, if you have the $5 to spare, just go ahead, sign up for, sign up for a subscription and, uh, and just, just go nuts. Like there's, there's, there's like so much on the app that like, uh, that we haven't even begun to cover. We like barely scratched the surface, I think, which is why, uh, I'm, I'm definitely excited to come back to this app on a future episode of the podcast, hopefully. So, yeah. The app runs pretty smoothly, so it's a good reading experience. There are some things that I wish they would add to improve. Like, I wish they just had, like, a only on Mangamo tag so you could get, you could find what series are exclusive to the app very easily. Because they highlight a few, like, on their front page in their explore section, but they don't highlight all of them. So if they just added that tag, that would be convenient. Uh, and beyond that, uh, they could probably add a few more helpful tags, I think. And also, like, general, like, when series update. So, like, sometimes, like, it's easy to find out when the series are going to update. But other times, it's like, they don't say on the series page. So, that's something that could they could add. Uh, but otherwise, like, the in terms of reading series itself, it's, like, really, really good. Mm-hmm. I, I think the one the the uh while we're talking about our small criticisms of the app, uh I think the only other thing I wish they had on there, and this is a thing that like that I kind of expect from every manga app or service at this point, but like I really wish they had the option to like view two page spreads as like a whole. Uh unfortunately this is the this is the kind of app where like it it just doesn't really have that functionality like for example with the viz app you can kind of turn your phone a certain way and you'll be able to see the whole spread but that's just not something you could really do with this app unfortunately like that's like such an important thing to me is because i love seeing two page spreads 
as they're meant to be seen as a whole, you know. And when an app doesn't have that, I'm I'm a little sad. But like, I don't know. May- maybe that's just the thing with me. I don't know if other people really care about that. Admittedly, but like, you know, as someone who reads a lot of manga and really likes taking a look at the art, especially, you know, I, I care about that functionality specifically. Um, so, you know, I wish it had that, but otherwise, yeah, I mean, uh, other than that one weird time I couldn't get Loving Yamada to load for whatever reason, um, I, I would still recommend this app and I would still say it's definitely worth checking out, you know, if you haven't already, so. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think with all that out of the way, I think we can just move on to the end of the show. What do you say? I think so. I think we are done with Manga Mo for now. Oh. I hope you guys enjoyed our discussion of some of Manga Mo's most interesting and enjoyable exclusive titles. And we'll definitely be returning to Manga Mo's roster in the future to check out some more of their exclusives because there's definitely a lot of other interesting titles on the service to check out and read. So we will look forward to that. But I think it is about time to wrap up the show with some community shoutouts. And if you want to learn more about Manga Mo, well, we mentioned it earlier in this podcast, but definitely give that ANN Connect interview with Dallas Mid Awe a listen to because it's not only informational about Manga Mo as a service and how they've been working with different publishers and artists to get titles on their service, but Dallas, of course, is an industry veteran. He's worked with several different publishers, and so it's very cool to hear his insights on how the industry has changed, how the publishing landscape for Monk has changed, and what titles have paved the way for that, as well as some stories from his time at Kodansha in particular, like how Attack on Titan was not a big hit when it was first being published by Kodansha until the anime came out. It was actually a bomb for Kodansha USA until that anime came out. So there's some really great anecdotes that Dallas shares there, so definitely give that a check out. And my remaining shout-outs that I want to give this time are also podcast mainly. So, first off, I want to highlight an episode of the Tanami Faithful podcast, episode 336 called Thankful for the Ladies, where they basically just celebrate a lot of the great, talented women who have been working in the American anime industry, particularly those involved with Tanami. And this includes people working on Adult Swim like Kim Manning and Dana Snyder, and as well as voice actresses and characters that they love. I think it's a very good celebration of all the wonderful ladies in the anime industry. I also want to give a shout out to a recent episode of the My Hero Academia podcast, episode 130, where uh, they discussed kind of their theories on the future of the series. And some of those theories regarding, like, Mirio and Aerie kind of got true out by the next chapter that came out after I recorded that. But there's a lot of cool speculation there and thoughts on, like, where they would like to see the series go that I thought was very interesting. And I think leaves some good food for thought into what they consider what might be in store in the future of the series, what directions it could go. But speaking of jump stuff... The anime feminist team has returned to Shonen Jump in another follow-up to their discussion on series on the Shonen Jump app and subscription that are not 
currently uh, in the works in terms of anime adaptations. They basically decided to talk about all this stuff since they last checked out the service in April. So about 20 different titles and they like they liked a third of them unequivocally, at least one person. Uh, and then they were so-so on three others, and they only hated half. They only hated half of uh, the titles. So that's a pretty good average. And I think we, when we do our, you know, Shonen Jump retrospective uh, for our Patreon this year and our best of manga, we're going to be kinder to maybe some of the gag series that they were not super high on. But I think they made some very good points on, you know, some elements of some of these series that don't really work or are problematic or distasteful and just sometimes not very well thought out in terms of writing. So I think it was a really good criticism, very entertaining podcast. I enjoyed hearing their thoughts on all these series. And yeah, so that was a good one. And my last podcast I want to recommend to check out is not necessarily anime uh, specific related, but it's a new RPG podcast that's being hosted by Asterios, who I've recommended their show The Loudest podcast before. They're working on this new RPG podcast based on the cyberpunk RPG uh, game, the role-playing game, which I've heard a lot of, you know, talk about uh, cyberpunk uh, 2077 right now. This game that they're playing is like the original RPG that that new video game is kind of spun out out of like uh, based on so if you're interested in that game you know definitely check out like this podcast which is kind of set in the same universe uh, based on the rpg version and he basically you know Asterios is his profession is a pr person so he played a pr person in this game who lives in a helicopter uh, and then he gets involved in some big conspiracy with like a wealthy executive at a tech firm. And so it leads to a whole bunch of shenanigans. And he's a serious is, uh, doing this podcast with, uh, Joe Starr from Screen Junkies and also Emmy Award nominated writer in his own right. And also, uh, Jeffrey Golden. So it's really funny show, really entertaining. And, uh, man, Asterius is just great, so great at uh, improv, like, his character. I just, when he's, like, talking with the uh, executive in the, in the, well, in this story, and he's like, well, uh, you know, I don't really know you, sir, and so I don't know how I would, you know, be a PR person for you, like, without knowing your profession, but, but if, you know, you ask my opinion, I would just, you seem like charismatic guy, I would just, like, uh, ha- invite anyone you were trying to, like, attract and impress, like, to just have a dinner with you. It's like, I just like serious as improv and, like, how you'll spin things out of the situation. I like, towards the end of the podcast, like, his character just goes off the rails to become, like, a thief, and he's like, oh, I, I want to get out of this building. Can I put all my roles into luck? Because I really want to get out of this building with all this stuff I stole. 
And I just, uh, it's really, really funny. So definitely check this show out. I'm, I'm really entertained by it. Really looking forward to it. And I think that's about all the shout outs I will give on this episode. And I think now we can head into the wrap up of the show. Yep, that's right. Um, but before we do that, actually, you kind of mentioned our um, our upcoming Shonen Jump retrospective. Um, for those who don't know, uh, last year for our Patreon at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, wink, um, we, we recorded a special Shonen Jump kind of year-end retrospective uh, for the year of 2019, uh, where we basically talked about uh, at least everything that... Uh, uh, both Lum and I, as well as uh, Maxi, our good friend and Shun Jump expert, uh, were all reading in Jump at the time. Uh, it basically tried to cover as much as we could uh, as far as like whatever series were from the weekly Shun and Jump magazine in particular. So uh, nothing like, uh, you know, Spy Family, Kaiju Number 8, One Punch Man, uh, specifically weekly Shun and Jump titles that were available simulpubbed. And uh, we had a lot of fun doing that last year. Uh, we uploaded it as a special bonus podcast on our Patreon, and uh, we're basically going to do that again. We are going to be recording another retrospective again with our friend Maxi to kind of celebrate uh, this last year of Jump. And yeah, we're basically going to do the same thing uh, that we did last year, where uh, we at least talk about everything that all three of us are reading and... You know, it, it just in general, try to cover as much as we can. Um, the, the last time we did one of these, it went on for almost three hours, and I'm sure I'm sure it'll take us that much time to do it again, maybe even longer, I don't know. But yeah, so if you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash uh, you could pretty much look forward to that at the end of the month, uh, hopefully no later than like January 2nd uh, is when we're planning to have that up on our Patreon. And also, just like last year, um, I think we're also going to make it a tradition. And uh, just like how we kind of released this podcast in particular last year, uh, where we uh, where we kind of made it available for all, for all patrons, uh, I think we're going to do the same thing here with uh, this year's podcast and uh, and the rest of our show to jump retrospectives kind of moving forward. Um, so basically if you're paying even just a dollar on our Patreon, you'll get access to this podcast. So, so even if you're not like subscribed to our usual $5 tier where we usually upload our, our bonus monthly Patreon podcast every month, um, you know, don't worry, it'll be available for all patrons again for just as low as a dollar, you'll be able to listen to the three of us talk about Shonen Jump for possibly three hours or more. Uh, and I think that's a pretty good deal. You know, it's it's the holidays. Like I I feel like we need to, I feel like we need to give all of our patrons something back for like, you know, follow, following us and supporting us all throughout the year. You know, give give people sort of sort of a sort of a freebie. I, I don't know if you would, I don't know if you would really want to call it that because we're still putting it behind a paywall. But still, uh, we at least wanted to make it more like as available as possible. So, yeah, uh, basically, that's what we're going to do. Again, it'll hopefully be out no later than January 2nd. So at the very latest, it'll be out like after New Year's Day. Uh, I don't want to have it come out too late after the holidays, you know. But uh, yeah, again, that'll be at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. We'll talk about the Patreon more in just a second. And yeah, so I guess we should start plugging our stuff then. So Lum, where can the good people find you? 
You can find me at Lomomiyasha and at Lomomiyasha as a variety of places like an image Relation, Annie List, wherever there's a Lomomiyasha, that's where you can find me. You can read my reviews of manga and films and all sorts of things on all-comer.com. we got a lot of books coming in, so a lot of reviews are going to come out, so look forward to those on there. And if you like the art I do for this show, the thumbnails I draw, you can check out my art at my Instagram at SidArtWorks. All right. And as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host and produce a few other podcasts on the side besides this one, uh, which you can find links to over at my personal blog at ColtonCorner.wordpress.com. That's where you'll find a page dedicated to basically whatever podcasts I'm doing at the moment. And uh, that's basically where you can find all my stuff in particular. But as for this podcast, you can find every episode of Manga Mavericks over at all-comic.com. That's where we post every episode first, unless you are a patron of ours at Patreon over at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, where at the $2 tier, uh, patrons will get access to early editions of select podcasts. Basically, whenever we have an episode of the podcast edited, but it's not time for it to go up on our main feed, uh, we'll basically upload it there for people to listen to before anyone else. Uh, So basically, at that tier, that's the earliest you'll be able to listen to any of our podcasts. Or if you're looking for some new content, you can subscribe to our $5 tier, uh, where patrons will get access to a new podcast at the end of every month exclusively for patrons. And uh, like I was saying earlier, the next Patreon-exclusive podcast, our Shonen Jump Retrospective for 2020, uh, will be available for all patrons, regardless of what tier you're paying for. So basically, that's going to be our gift to all our patrons uh, for the end of the month. But yes, normally our monthly bonus podcasts are exclusively for uh, for, for the $5 tier in particular. And uh, hopefully by the end of January, we'll have a new episode of our of sort of our monthly side podcast that we've been doing lately called the Manga Mavericks Book Club, where we basically go over different manga that we've covered on the podcast before, except we go over them volume by volume to give us the opportunity to talk about certain series a little more in depth. This time we're covering Masami Kuramata's Saint Seiya, the original Saint Seiya manga from Masami Kuramata. It's my first time reading it, as well as my friend Doctor from the Ask Backwards Anime Podcast, who is joining me on this 100% blind read-through. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, the next episode of that should be out by the end of January uh, for all of our patrons. So yeah, uh, you can basically listen to that and so much more. We have so much bonus content on our Patreon. Again, for patrons' ears only, uh, I think we have probably close to 20 hours worth of bonus content on there at this point. So uh, if you really like the podcast and you want to just listen to more of it, uh, you can subscribe again to the $5 tier. And just in general, we really appreciate the support of all of our patrons, again, at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. It's really the best way for you guys to support our show and everything we do. And again, it, we, we cannot overstate how much we appreciate your help and support uh, making this show and everything we do possible. Uh, as for everything else, you can follow us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow Manga Mavericks specifically, you want to follow us on Twitter at Manga underscore Mavericks or on Tumblr at MangaMavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Manga Mavericks where we have excerpts of the podcast and sometimes even some exclusive content every once in a while. So again, that's at YouTube.com 
slash manga mavericks. Uh, email us anything at manga mavericks at gmail.com. Uh, what did you think about all the Mangamo series that we talked about on this podcast? Uh, what What do you think about the Mangamo app in general? Uh, what are some series that you're reading? Uh, what do you want to hear us talk about on the podcast? Again, anything podcast or manga related, or really just send us an email, you know, uh, and we'll read it on the show. We love getting emails from you guys. Uh, again, that's at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or basically wherever you listen to podcasts. We're available on uh, many different platforms, uh, but especially on Apple Podcasts, uh, we really appreciate whatever ratings or reviews that you guys leave us on there. Uh, it really helps the visibility of our show, uh, especially on Apple Podcasts. And uh, yeah, we just love getting feedback from you guys in general. Uh, it helps us kind of figure out like how to make the show better. And what we can improve on. So uh, please go ahead and do that if you so wish. Um, But yeah, that's going to be about it for the show. And again, uh, thank you guys so much for listening. This has been episode 144 of the Manga Mavericks podcast on allcomic.com. We will see you guys next time for episode 145. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.